Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Reckless. When Crawl was released, my friends and I were already very much into fantasy entertainment, fantasy literature, Dungeons and Dragons, fantasy comic books. So it made sense when a fantasy motion picture came out that we would all want to see it. And not only would we see anything that was fantasy related, but we would obsess over them, often incorporating elements of the movies we saw into our Dungeons and Dragons settings, but also into other types of play we had. And we still played with action figures, for the most part. And if we could take an element of crawl into that, we would. But we also did sort of imaginative play at times. We would act out scenes from movies. Very silly stuff. When a film had a interesting prop in it, things could sometimes be taken up a notch. In crawl, there is this weapon called the glaive. The glaive is a throwing weapon. It has five blades on it. You throw it and it comes back to you. It's amazing. It's really one of the things you remember about this film when you see it, especially when you're young. As you might guess, my friends and I were quite taken with the glaive and wanted to make glaives of our own. The closest we could come to a glaive was frisbees. And since you couldn't cut up a frisbee and still have it throw like a frisbee, we would paint or draw glaives on the frisbee and then we would toss frisbees at each other like they were weapons. So I'd like to take a moment though to take you a step deeper into how my friends and I would play. We would make these items and play around with them and then afterwards we would sit there and sort of talk about how things could be improved or what other things from the movie we could do. That's why for example one night my friends and I poured lighter fluid on the tires of our bikes and rode down the street so that we could be kind of like the horses in the movie that had fire and stuff shooting off of them. This did not go over well because family members spotted us doing it and we were leaving flaming tracks behind us because we put way too much lighter fluid all over everything. It was a terrible thing waiting to happen. But that just shows you the level we were willing to go to to capture that movie magic. Sometimes it was fun and I would get swept up in what was going on. Other times, it sort of terrified me because my friends would just do these things almost without thinking, just because they thought, well, this will be cool, let's do it. One of them had an idea that we could figure out a way to put some sort of blades on the edges of the frisbee. Maybe nails sticking out the sides or razor blades somehow glued to it. This never happened. Just want to get that out of the way. This never happened. But it gave me nightmares. And I think my pushback against them, because of my realization that somebody is going to get really hurt if we do this, made them want to pursue it more. And so for at least a month or two, when we were still into Krull Mania and we would have our Frisbee fights, I would insist on checking the Frisbees before we played with them. Because I was very sure one day one of them was going to sneak some sort of blade onto their Frisbee and someone was going to get hurt. That's not going to be fun. This level of violent, imaginative play 
that my friends and I embraced when we were kids didn't seem all that weird. Instead, it just felt like we wanted to figure out fun ways to inhabit the worlds that we were seeing on the screen. I'm sure it terrified our parents. I don't think a parent then would endorse that sort of behavior and certainly wouldn't today. Still, it's hard not to be inspired by certain films. So on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about one of those films, the 1983 fantasy classic Krull. We'll talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. We'll talk about the production of the film, the music, its reception, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. is a 1983 science fiction fantasy. I've actually heard it referred to as science fantasy film. It was directed by Peter Yates, written by Stanford Sherman. It's about a prince from a far-off fantasy planet and a group of followers that he gathers around him on this planet called Krull. And they have to save a princess who will be the future queen from the beast. And that means getting to the dread black fortress where the beast dwells. I'm going to start off talking a little bit about the writer of Krull, who was Stanford Sherman. Sherman, who is a television and film writer, was born in Ohio. And he's best known for films like Krull, Ice Pirates, Any Which Way You Can, and the TV shows Batman and The Man from Uncle. That's a pretty good resume. Those movies are ones that I really like, and those two TV shows are really good. So he was brought on to write this screenplay. But the idea for the film started way back in 1980 when at Columbia Pictures, Frank Price, who was president, asked producer Ron Silverman. Ron Silverman is a fairly famous producer and he was an actor as well. He asked Silverman and his partner, Ted Mann, if they wanted to make a fantasy film. So it was Silverman who hired Sanford Sherman. Sherman would write a plot line that was sent to Columbia who approved it. The original title of the film was The Dragons of Krull, and the big beast at the end of the film, the mega villain, was going to be a dragon. But as the film evolved, the beast was changed into something else, something more reptilian, as it's described by Sherman. And so they dropped the dragons of, and it just became Krull. Although not everybody was happy with that name, and we'll talk about that later. They did do a second version of of the screenplay. They brought in Steve Tessick. This redone version would have cut down on the special effects dramatically. So it was mostly dialogue driven. Since they wanted this to be a big film though, they decided, well, let's drop that and focus on the much more special effects laden one by Sherman. 
Steve Tesic was born in 1942, passed away in 96. He's an Academy Award winning screenwriter who won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay in 1979 for the film Breaking Away. One of the chief criticisms that you'll hear about Krull is actually the screenplay in that people will say it is too derivative of other fantasy movies at the time or fantasy works in general. A lot of people will talk about how it borrows from The Lord of the Rings, where you have a magical weapon, these sinister guardians, a giant spider. Yes, there are similarities between the two, but a lot of films and works were borrowing from each other. And there was not a broad definition of high fantasy at the time. And so there was bound to be some overlap, I guess. That doesn't mean that the criticisms of the screenplay are unwarranted. There is a lot of plots that just sort of ramble on toward what you think is going to be an inevitable solution. And then the characters can't do that solution. And so they have to invent some whole new thing that you didn't expect, which gives the film a little bit of a disjointed feel, or at least continually challenges your disbelief. One positive aspect of the film is the way that magic is portrayed in the film. It was something my friends and I would talk about a lot back in the day. Magic is sort of just taken for granted in the world of Krull. They don't stop to discuss how magic functions. It just is. After the first draft of the film was done, they wanted to find a director and they offered the job to Peter Yates. He had read the screenplay for The Dragons of Krull and was intrigued. He thought it would be a challenge to make a fantasy film. He had never done one up till that point. Who had? He also realized that with films like Star Wars and E.T., all of these great special effects-laden films, that in 1983, one could take advantage of all these new developments in technology to make a fantasy movie unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. The film went through a year of pre-production with Sherman doing lots of re-edits to the scripts and Yates starting to storyboard it out, along with people he would bring on to his production team. This is also when casting would start. The director, Peter Yates, directed films like Robbery and Bullet. Bullet is a wonderful movie if you haven't seen it, one of the best car chases in a film. He actually started out as a race car driver and team manager in life, although very briefly before starting a career in film. He would pick very interesting things to work on, from movies like Bullet to the Peter Benchley written The Deep to the coming-of-age comedy Breaking Away in 1979. Krull would be an interesting footnote in his career, but probably not one he would consider a highlight. As Yates said in an interview, Krull was complicated and enormous. He was so deep into making the film before it even began that he had to take a vacation at some point because it had gone on so long, and he was so deeply involved in just constant work on the film. The film was originally going to be shot at various locations, but as the story moved from a medieval-style motion picture into one that was entirely science fantasy, they realized they would have to build sets on sound stages. And a very small number of sequences were actually shot on location, and those were done in Italy and England. They would build 23 gigantic sets for the film, using more than 10 sound stages at the legendary Pinewood Studios in the United Kingdom. Because of all of this and because of the changes to the script, the budget would balloon 
to upwards of $30 million. It would take a long time, but finally, on January 25th, 1983, production would begin on Krull. Before we get into the cast of the film, let's talk a little bit about the plot. The beginning of the film begins with some narration that talks about a girl of ancient name that shall become queen and that she shall choose a king and together that they will rule the world. Then they will have a son who shall rule the galaxy. Seems like they were setting up for a sequel here or maybe like a whole play into the world of Krull. Sadly, that did not happen or you would probably be aware of Krull more. In the film, the planet Krull is invaded by a creature known as the Beast along with his army of slayers. They travel throughout the galaxy in a giant rocky black fortress. Really cool looking. Now there's this wedding happening at the beginning between Prince Colwyn and Princess Lysa. When the beast attacks, they kill everyone except for Prince Colwyn and they kidnap the princess. At this point, Prince Colwyn is nursed back to health in a very short sequence by Yinyir, the old one. Can't even say his name, Yinyir. That's spelled Y-N-Y-R. I watched this movie dozens of times and finally looked up how to spell his name and that is very satisfying. Yinyir is this ancient being who is also the narrator of the film, who comes out of this mountain to help Prince Colwyn, who's chosen to be the one who shall wield the glaive, hopefully. And as I mentioned in my story, the glaive is a five-pointed throwing star as a weapon, but it's magical. It can cut through anything. So now it is a journey of Colwyn and Yinir and all the people he picks up along the way. This includes a magician named Ergo, a group of nine thieves, and the Cyclops Rel, among others, as they move to finally rescue the princess and kill the beast. Now, if you've watched other movies in the 80s up to this point, when you get your group of heroes together, maybe one of them will die. There's such a large number of heroes in this film that they kill more than you expect them to. There's all this sacrifice to save the princess along the way. And it's unlike anything outside of, say, like certain Westerns we had seen or war movies that we had seen when we were younger. It was something completely different and interesting in that regard. Not your typical fantasy fair. Surprise, the film has a happy ending, by the way. Beyond our universe. Is a story of a powerful mystical weapon buried for eons of a prince who must learn how to use it do not use it until you need it oh i know where you will know to rescue his love from the clutches of the beast i shall be your king it is the story of a band of rogues thieves bandits fighters and brawlers those are the kind of men i need of a cycle and a change Joining forces to battle an unearthly enemy for the life of their princess and the freedom of their world. A world like years beyond your imagination. A world called Krull. Rated PG. Coming soon to a theater near you. Prince Colwyn is played by Ken Marshall. Ken Marshall, as an actor in film, is probably best known for Krull. Although, he did a great job in the 1982 television miniseries, Marco Polo. For more modern audiences who might have watched Star Trek Deep Space Nine, he played Michael Eddington in that series. 
I remember seeing him on screen and thinking, wait, who is that guy? I recognize him. He's somebody. Who is that? And this is before you could just jump on the internet quickly and look things up. It took me a little bit to figure it out. I had to wait for the credits and then think, Ken Marshall. Oh my gosh, Krull. So he appeared multiple times as Michael Eddington on Deep Space Nine, and he did a very good job. Lisette Anthony played Princess Lissa. If you are a Lisette Anthony fan and have seen her in other things, you will note that the voice in this film does not match her voice in real life. For some reason, someone thought it would be better if they had an American accent on Lisette. I guess to match Ken Marshall, who didn't have an English accent either. So they would be the only two with, I guess, American accents in the film. I'm not so sure that the voice matches up well. The person who does it does a fine job, but I'm not sure it matches up with the princess. It sounds more mature than the princess would be. Outside of Krull, Lisette worked quite a lot on TV, mostly in the UK, like most of the actors in this film. Trevor Martin voiced the Beast. In the movie, the Beast is not something you see very clearly at any time. They kind of do some really interesting distortions on him. Trevor Gordon Martin passed away in 2017, born in 1929, was a stage and film actor to worldwide audiences. They might have seen him for a couple of roles on the cult TV series Doctor Who, but he appeared in some movies that went wider, 1965's Othello, 2000's The House of Mirth, and 2006's Babel. Freddie Jones played Yin-Yir, or the old one. He's also the narrator of the film. He has a huge filmography as well in a well-received role. He was the showman Bites in the 1980 film The Elephant Man. And if you watched ITV, he was on the soap opera Emmerdale from 2005 to 2018. David Batley played Ergo the Magnificent. He is the comic relief of the film. He could shapeshift into animals. And basically everything is played for laughs. And Batley's a great person to cast. He has a very sort of dry delivery in the film. When I saw him the first time, what I remembered him for was his appearance in the 1971 film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So if you recognize him, that might be where you recognize him from. Like everyone else in this film, a really healthy filmography and TVography. Bernard Breslau, the six foot seven actor, played Rel the Cyclops. I like that he was six foot seven, which is big and bigger than everyone else in the film, but he still wore lifts to make himself even bigger, which really works. And I want to say they did a great job on the makeup of the Cyclops and the prosthetics that had a radio controlled eye that would blink and move. It's really well done. Unfortunately, as you might imagine, it was also very difficult for Breslau to see during the making of the film. So he would talk about how during certain scenes, he couldn't see anything and came very close to hurting himself on many occasions. Born in 1934, he sadly passed away in 1993. There's a great other film he's in, if you like fantasy, the 1980 film Hawk the Slayer, where he played Gord. So he was in two films that my friends and I like to watch. There's a lot more people in this film, some you're going to recognize, but I just want to put them out there all at once. John Welsh played the Emerald Seer. Graham McGrath played Titch the Sears' young apprentice. Francis Ennis played the Widow of the Web. And then finally, there were a band of robbers led by Alan Armstrong as Torkel. His group of bandits include Liam Neeson, Robbie Coltrane, 
Dick Ashworth, Todd Cardi, Bronco McLaughlin, Gerard Napras, Andy Bradford, and Bill Weston. As you might know, Robbie Coltrane would go on to do a lot more. And of course, Liam Neeson is a huge star as well. So those two went on to some great things. But all in all, a great group of people playing all of these roles and doing a great job. When this movie came out and we heard the word glaive, it was not a made up word to my friends and I because we had been playing Dungeons and Dragons. And in Dungeons and Dragons, a glaive is a pole arm, a weapon that's a blade on a long pole. So picture a broomstick with a single edged blade on the end of it. We were really surprised to see the name glaive used in a very different way in this film to describe this throwing star. And as geeks about it, we were offended. How dare they borrow this? Everybody's going to know that it is not a glaive. And of course, nobody knew what a glaive polearm is. And most people who might have heard of Krull and you were to say glaive would at least know it's the weapon from the movie. The glaive is sort of this catch-all item that can do anything if it's going to work. You throw it, it comes back, it can cut through things, it can act as a shield. And so a really useful sort of Excalibur lightsaber sort of moment when it's being used. And it is really cool because it's this giant throwing star who doesn't love it. It had a really good creator behind it. Derek Meddings created the glaive for Krull. Meddings, who was born in 1931 and passed away in 1995, worked in the British television and film industry as a special effects designer for a very long time, notably started on the Super Marionation TV puppet series that was produced by Jerry Anderson. In the 70s and 80s, he would later go on to work on the James Bond and Superman films, so very well known. The Glaive came back to the forefront when it was included in Ready Player One in the final battle sequence. The film has some very talented people behind it, making it look great, but also has a great person making it sound great. And that would be the composer, James Horner. Horner passed away in 2015. He was born in 1953. He was a composer, conductor, and orchestrator of film scores. His first film was in 1979 for The Lady in Red, but would really come to prominence in 1982 when he worked on the soundtrack of the film Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. He would write the score for James Cameron's Titanic and Avatar, huge films. In between, he would work on Aliens, Field of Dreams, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Mask of Zorro, The Rocketeer, A Beautiful Mind, and many more. He was well-respected and collaborated with dozens of Hollywood and musical legends and would go on to win two Academy Awards, six Grammy Awards, two Golden Globes, and three Saturn Awards. This film score was composed by Horner and was performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and the Ambrosian Singers. It's a great soundtrack. It has big fanfare and sweeping romance. It also includes some science fiction-y stuff, and you can hear things from his other works like Star Trek II and Battle Beyond the Stars in it. There have been numerous album releases by various labels over the years. The first one was in 1987, which was a 45-minute condensed edition of the soundtrack. In 1992 and 1994, they released a longer one that was 78 minutes long, expanding on the previously released music. It also included things that hadn't been in the other ones, including the main title music, which is excellent. In 1998, Supertracks released a two-CD set that included 
really good liner notes and information and was fairly comprehensive. This release, if you're a collector, has become very hard to get over the years. So in 2010, La La Land Records reissued that Super Tracks album with extra cues and even more liner notes that was put out in a very limited edition, which sold out super quickly. They reissued it again, and I believe that one sold out as well fairly quickly. It shouldn't surprise you when you have someone like Horner behind it that this soundtrack is very well received by people who watch the film. Even people who don't love the film itself will say, wow, it has a really good soundtrack. And I would fold that soundtrack in to some of the other positive things about this film, especially its cinematography. It is often quite beautiful. And even during the parts where you might say things are a bit slow, they drag the action out at some points. Usually that's during a very pretty scene. So you match this cinematography and some of these beautiful sets along with James Horner's music. And you got something that's going to be a lot better than most things. The year it was released, Variety described the movie as Excalibur meets Star Wars. So a sort of high fantasy meets space opera. Krull was going to be released in the summer of 1983, but Peter Yates wasn't very happy with the name. He thought, nobody's going to know what Krull is. It didn't convince him that it was going to set the world on fire. So he asked everyone associated with the film to try to come up with something new and they would vote on a new name. Everyone participated. In the end, though, they chose Krull. So it makes you wonder, what were the other options? Why did they not work out? I would just love to know. I kind of wish that the beast was a dragon because dragons of anything sounds really cool. But if it had caught on and the world of Krull had expanded, then it would have been a great choice of a name. The film was released in the United States on July 29th, 1983, and then in the UK on December 27th, 1983. It had a budget of 27 to $30 million. It's kind of questionable. And it would go on to make $16.9 million at the box office. So not a blockbuster. There was a promotional tie-in with the film that is pretty wonderful. They had an essay contest because, you know, you're trying to get people excited for movies. You should have an essay contest. And those who would win could get married dressed in costumes from the movie, including the fabulous wedding dress from the beginning of the film. A dozen winners were married off in a one-day-only ceremony in 1983 that garnered very little attention. So it really didn't go anywhere, and they didn't talk about it much after that. But there is evidence of it out there. I found a great ad from the bridal salon at Oser's at the downtown Reading Mall in Reading, California. And it has a great picture of the wedding dress. And it says, from Alfred Angelo and Columbia Pictures, a beautiful wedding gown designed exclusively for the soon-to-be-released romantic fantasy adventure, Krull. Now you can see the elegant Krull wedding gown, shown here modeled by Krull star Lisette Anthony at Oser's in the downtown Reading Mall. And we invite you to enter the Win a Krull Wedding Contest, sponsored by Alfred Angelo Bridles and Columbia Pictures. Contest rules are available at Osers. This Osers was taking it very seriously, and people entered and got married in their Krull wedding gowns, and I would love to see that. I wish more movies tried to do something at least interesting and unique like that, even if it fails. In the Black Fortress lies an unthinkable terror, an unspeakable evil, a force of darkness, the Beast. 
A prince must rescue his princess bride and save a world from total domination. This is a tale of heroism, adventure, romance, and incredible power. Crawl, Thursday at 8 on Fox 11. The film didn't do very good at the box office, and reviews weren't great either. But despite the fact that people described it as moody or melancholy or even slow, a lot of people still mentioned that it was very watchable at the same time because there was familiar elements from other properties that we all enjoy. And it had very talented people behind it, making it both look good and sound good. I think the people who really focused in on the screenplay being a big part of the problem really do kind of get it. They were making a film that was going to have potentially a lot of special effects, but they weren't necessarily writing well for those special effects. So you do get some really cool things in it, but two or three years later, in the right hands, Krull could have been so much more. These elements that were well-received were also nominated for awards. The film would get three Saturn Award nominations, one for Best Fantasy Film, one for Best Music for James Horner, and one for Best Costumes for Anthony Mendelssohn. So what else was playing in theaters that week when Krull came out? Let's do the top 10 and we'll count down. Krull premiered at number four, just so you know. Number 10 was War Games, which had been out before. Number nine was a re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Number eight was Class. Number seven was Trading Places. Number six in its first week was Private School. Number five was Staying Alive. Number four was Krull with $5.4 million. Number three was Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi known back then as simply Return of the Jedi. Number two was Jaws 3D, which had premiered the week before. And the number one film was National Lampoon's Vacation. Great week for film. So I printed out here what was playing at my local theater that week. We had two movie theaters in town, a fourplex and a sixplex. The fourplex is the one that I often went to. And I look at what was playing there and I could see exactly what I saw. Krull was playing there in theater one. In Theater 2, you had Trading Places. In Theater 3, you had the film Class. And in Theater 4, Jaws 3D. Over at the Sixplex, which is where all the real highfalutin people went, you had Staying Alive, Vacation, War Games, Private School, Flashdance, and Snow White. So, pretty good offering in my hometown for films. Not so bad. We only had one drive-in that was still kind of close to us. And at that drive-in... They were showing Private School and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Feels like Jaws 3D would have been a really good one to see. Even Krull would have been really good to see at a drive-in. I would have loved that. When this movie came out and you look at it, you think these would have made amazing toys. And there were some plans to put out a Krull toy line. They would have been made by Knickerbocker, who had worked on action figures for Lord of the Rings based on the Ralph Bakshi film. But almost as soon as it started coming together, it started falling apart. There was talk that the production of the film was going crazy, that they were spending too much money, and that it wasn't going to be a great film. And at the same time, Knickerbocker was being acquired by Hasbro. And so sadly, the toy line was killed, which was a shame because if anything could have saved Krull, it was the design of the figures and world that they had created. You just know that had any of these made it out there or if any 
Glaive toys or anything like that been out there. They might not have been a huge hit, but they certainly would be huge collector's items today. If you like stories like that, you should look for the book Toys That Time Forgot by Blake Wright. While they didn't make toys, they did have tie-ins. They had a novelization by Alan Dean Foster and a comic book adaptation that was put out by Marvel Comics that was written by David Michelini and had Vince Coletta and Brett Blevins as artists. Several games would be released with the Krull license. Parker Brothers produced a card game and a board game. There was a video game released by Gottlieb. They were also working on a pinball machine that only made it to the prototype phase. And of course, there was a video game released for the Atari 2600. It was originally developed for the Atari 5200, but because of the poor sales, they changed it to a Atari 2600 game. I personally like the arcade game. Before I move on from tie-ins and all that stuff, there was this long-running rumor, and I'm not sure where it started, but I remember hearing about it and reading about it online even later, that Krull was supposed to be associated with Dungeons and Dragons in some way. That has been debunked. TSR, who made D&D at the time, was never approached for Krull to be a part of that universe or vice versa. I think it's just timing. The early 80s were a golden age for Dungeons and Dragons. There was all this fantasy. It just made a lot of sense that people might associate it. I mean, my friends and I who played a lot of D&D instantly jumped on the Krull bandwagon trying to incorporate Krull stuff into our world. That meant, of course, everybody wanting to have a glaive-like weapon for their character. The film would be released on every major format that would come out, starting with VHS. It would be on Laserdisc, CED, Betamax, DVD, and even Blu-ray. So right away, Krull was out there, and it started to get play on cable television. So all of these things helped to make the film's money back, but also started to get the film a cult following. One of the highlights of the DVD releases was the release of a making-of film that was made for television called Journey to Krull from 1983. What's great is while you can get it on the DVD, it's also posted often on YouTube. It's not very long, but it's a lot of fun to watch if you're really into Krull. None of this has stimulated anyone's want for a Krull sequel or anything to happen in the Krull universe, which might be okay. Krull should just exist for what it is. But I do think there's something a little bit more to this fantasy world than what was captured in just this film. After all, with just the props and characters they put on screen for this all-too-short film, they were able to capture the imagination of lots of young people. And while sometimes the film is criticized or mocked for a lot of people, myself included, it was a beloved film that I returned to time and again. So if you're looking for a little bit different type of fantasy to watch in your life, and you've never seen Krull, why not give it a look? It might not be as sharply written as other works, but I think you'll see some of the mastery behind it. And if you allow yourself to be immersed in the world of Krull and think and dream about what could have been, I think you'll see that this rewarding experience will fire up your imagination and leave you wanting more. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and now Instagram 
I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and instagram.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitch and Twitter. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. The art you see promoting this podcast, the fun comic, is by Christopher Tupa. You should follow Christopher Tupa at his website. He's at ctupa.com. That's C-T-U-P-A dot com. Thanks to everybody who has been supporting the show. If you want to support the show, you could start off by giving the show a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. That really helps a lot of new people find the show, so it's really appreciated. If you want to go that next step, why not drop by Patreon at patreon.com slash retroist, and you could support the show there. Supporters of the show get access to the Retroist Discord, bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, and lots of other fun stuff. It's been a lot of fun doing that and meeting people through that community. I hope to see you there. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. much everything my friends and I did resulted in someone getting hurt. And my whole goal when I was hanging out with them was for me to not be the person who got hurt. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.